Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, and I'm excited to have someone from my previous life uh, available for us, Cole uh, Gahagan. Thank you so much for joining us. He is the CEO and president of Learfield IMG College, uh, which is an incredible organization, which has a lot changing in the last two years uh, between the pandemic and, of course, NIL. You must have your plate full, my friend. I do. I listen. I don't know if I've. I certainly don't have as, a plate that's as full as yours. I don't know if I. I don't know if I have a plate that's any uh, more full or fuller, whatever the right word is, than anybody else in all of sports and entertainment right now. As we sit in this weird hybrid chasm crossing period of coming out of a pandemic and and all the disruption that that caused with you know, hopefully being on the cusp of this rebound to sports entertainment, unlike any of us have ever seen. I think everybody, regardless of pros or college, uh, and regardless of what continent you find yourself on in, in, in any sport, I think we all have our plates full right now. But yeah, especially in the middle of um, a pretty significant bounce back in college football, we got a pretty full plate at the moment. We're, it's exciting. Which is really exciting. You know, I have transferred a lot of the knowledge of engagement and community uh, into the entrepreneurial world, you know, blessed to work for so many years. And I think that people underestimate the power of a community and the power of an engaged community yeah. and how it exponentially grows upon itself with, you know, what I think is the, the most efficient and least expensive way to, to build an audience. And I think that's true in business, but especially true uh, in sports, and I really felt a deeper level of engagement this season, yeah. uh, a, a bigger community this season. And I'm really, I was over at UCLA with the AD there, and we were talking about, you know, the basketball season. Uh, of course, you know, UCLA preseason number two, so they're extremely yeah. excited about it. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a big difference coming in to the pent-up uh, need uh, for this type of emotional attachment where have you seen the differences in engagement and community and, you know, how are you taking advantage of it in a business sense uh, for the upcoming season? Um, it's a great question, by the way. Uh, love that you were with Martin. Um, he's outstanding. He, yeah. he, Martin and I were actually together in L.A. Um, not too long ago, back in, in August, and it was the first time we, we had met. And it was an interesting it was an interesting kind of interaction for two relatively new guys. I think he was more new to the seat than, than I was at the time, but um, really enjoyed it. And, and what a passionate, dynamic kind of culture that he's continuing to, to build there at an iconic at an iconic school. Um, you know, look, I it, it's first of all, I would point to something that's I don't want to call it obvious and intuitive, but I, I, I'll, I'll use those two words, a bit obvious and intuitive. I think that it's human nature that when you're extraordinarily passionate about something, whatever that is, it doesn't matter. It could be the arts. It could be sports. It could be music. Uh, it could be all of those things. But whenever you're extraordinarily passionate about something, when your ability to participate in that thing is taken away, um, it, 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 I, I think in my experience, it, sort of drives the hunger for um, whatever that thing is and, and, and whatever your participation then has to, to be. In the case of sports last year, that was, I can't go to the event or a significant proportion of people that would normally attend the event weren't allowed to go. And so that fandom had to shift. Uh, I had to, of course, we saw viewership. We saw, we saw ratings um, go up. But it's not just about viewership. It's also about just engaging with that thing. And in our case, that's college sports, right? And, you know, when you think about a fan, and I'll, I'll pick on the college sports, stay on the college sports fans for a second, um, that fandom is not an episodic thing. It doesn't just happen on Sundays in the fall. And then when the basketball team or the women's basketball team or the baseball team are playing in the winter or spring, fandom in any sport, but, but college, I would argue, especially how generational it is, how deep rooted it is. It's a 365 day a year passion that, that these consumers known as fans have for these schools. So what we had to do during the pandemic was to say, number one, how do we ensure we know who those fans are? We have connectivity to those fans. And I'll, I'll share what we what we built over the last two years that we predated the, the pandemic or, or, or we had already been working on it before the pandemic anyway. We accelerated its go-to-market. 
But how do we ensure that we know who those fans are and we have connectivity to them? And then how do we then start to engage them more? Because, because we were in this moment in time where they were thirsting for that attachment and that engagement with this thing that they loved, which was Michigan, which was TCU and SMU, which was, <laughs> which was Florida, which was Alabama, whatever. How do we engage them on a regular basis in such a way that strengthens the connectivity between the school and the fan and ultimately between that brand and the fan? So there's two things that we did to answer your question kind of much more specifically. We built the largest now data infrastructure in college athletics. We have 40 million known college fans in partnership with our schools of understanding who their fans are. We have over 100 million anonymized fans. Those are the kind of people who went to the official athletic site. They perused, they, they, they checked out the schedule and they left. They didn't transact. We don't know who they are, but we dropped a cookie and we followed them. And now we've built profiles around them. But we have the largest data infrastructure now in college athletics in partnership with our schools so that we know who they are. And number two, we've built out a framework of new products that we can deliver to our brand partners, right? The, the Geico's of the world and, 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 the, and, and the Bridgestones of the world and the Allstates of the world that partner with us. We can now go and connect with those fans through digital marketing, through social content that we publish so that we're engaging with fans on behalf of these school brands at a time when they're thirsting for that engagement with those school brands more than more than ever. And at the same time, we're delivering value to the brand partners. So it's like I said, it's it's where we were going anyway as a company. COVID just gave us this really interesting opportunity to accelerate it and get moving quickly. That's awesome. Welcome, welcome Dave Marino, my co-host. He's uh, on East Coast time and uh, talk talk about active. This guy has a full plate. He has a new baby. So we'll give him a little bit of deference. <laughs> Dave, how are you? Hey, Cole. In, in, in homage to Mentorship Week, Dave will appreciate that. Thank you for your patience. Right? No one lesson, one Dave Melterism is never say, sorry, I'm late. Say thank you for your patience or thank you for understanding completely shifts. So uh, thank you both for your patience. And uh, I'm still going to apologize for being late. But Cole, you are definitely speaking my language. And I'm really interested because I know we're gearing up for the college basketball season. And the new changes with the NCAA in regards to name, image, and likeness, and basketball specifically being the sport uh, historically that has pushed that likeness, that, you know, that that face, uh, because they don't wear helmets, uh, as individual brands on a professional level, how do you see the growing push and the growing brands of the individual athletes sort of affecting the brands of colleges? And what sorts of things uh, can can you guys do to sort of capitalize on, say, you know, the kid that's pushing a huge NIL deal uh, at Michigan or to make Dave happy at Ohio State, even though we know that doesn't happen? Uh, how, can, how can you guys capitalize on that? Or, or do you see that being a gap in the market? Um. Look, I think the first thing that I would tell you, there are two first things that I would tell you in this order of importance. Number one, um, as a fan, put aside my everyday role. As a fan, I am exceedingly happy that this is now an opportunity that, that student athletes have to go and, and to monetize their name, image, and likeness in, in, a, in so many forms. You know, we, we're so quick to talk about the dealership and the top, and the top athlete. But remember, something as simple as... Uh, I'm a lacrosse player and I want to host my own camp this summer and charge for, for that. Historically, I've not been able to do. So it's everything on that spectrum of what of what kids, student athletes can do now that historically they've not been able to do. And at least personally as a fan, I think is just awesome and awesome for the, the business as well. The second thing that I would tell you is I, I think it's it's uh, way, way too early. Not that you asked me a question that's rooted in answers of absolutes. But I think it's way too early, in case you hear anybody speaking in absolutes about NIL, for, for, for anyone to do just that, to speak in absolute terms on something that I know it's, it's easy to forget, but we are uh, 117 days into right now. I mean, the NIL became law, July 1, or law, became, became policy of the NCAA on July 1. And, and we're only a short, you know, three and a half months into this right now a little more than three and a half months. So it's hard to kind of know with any degree of certainty or even or, or even high degree, high degree of confidence where this is going to go. What I, what I can tell you is a, a few things in terms of what we continue to be curious about and learn 
and 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 how I think that kind of shapes where we all go from here. Uh, number one, uh, one of the things that is important to remember is that the landscape of student athletes is uh, is almost almost it's so big it's difficult to wrap your brain around. There's 600,000 student athletes in college athletics across the, the, the different division, division one, division two, and so on. Um, and, and obviously not all those 600,000 student athletes are doing deals. A lot of them are. Um, but when you, when you talk about 30, 40, 50, 60,000 student athletes doing deals, these are not deals with math in the millions. These are deals in math, sub $10,000, sub $5,000 levels. Just heard recently of a deal that was done um, with a women's volleyball player where she was just you know, paid something less than a thousand dollars to be a part of a little girl's birthday party. That's the kind of thing that we're, you know, that we're seeing. So I think that we'll continue to see a marketplace of high volume of student athlete participation, particularly on commercial deals. But in the majority of cases, small dollar amounts. Mm -hmm. um, I think licensing opportunities, David, I think those are going to increase significantly in the months to come. I'm not sure if you guys saw it. We made a major announcement with one team partners two weeks ago. One team, as you know, manages most of the players associations, NFLPA, MLBPA. We launched a huge partnership with one team. In fact, uh, highly coincidentally, was just on the phone right before I joined you guys with uh, their CEO, Ahmad, we, we launched a big partnership with one team to usher NIL and uh, excuse me, licensing into the NIL landscape so that student athletes can now see themselves on a video game. They can now have jerseys made by fanatics with their with their name on it and, and with school marks, hopefully, so that so that uh, trading cards can become a thing. So I think that on the heels of that partnership we've put into place with one team, we're going to unlock a host of licensing opportunities for student athletes going forward. And then, you know, look, down the line, uh, it's hard to say where all of this will, will go. There's enough pontificating out there on social media and people who, who, you know, have their own opinions on it. But I do think that, that there will continue to be opportunities created with student athletes where potentially you've got student athlete and the brand and, and the university cooperatively, you know, doing deals. If it's good for the university, it's good for the student athlete, it's good for the brand. Um, so that you see kind of a rising tide effect for everybody. I think that there's going to be an opportunity for that down the line. It's just hasn't been defined yet. It's not, it's not clear how that's going to, how that's going to look. So I know a lot of abstract answers to the question, but only 117 days, whatever it is, 27 days into it, um, it's hard to be able to answer it in absolute terms. No, it was a, it was a great answer. And I think all of the uh, NCAA football video game fans are going to be very excited to hear about the licensing things. And I'm sure Ed O'Bannon will be happy to hear about it too. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Which a lot of UCLA, Dave, lately here. Uh, I, I got to have you back, Cole, because this was not enough time. Uh, no. Especially I wanted to explore the content and commerce side uh, with your extraordinary experience because – I call uh, what's going on in the sports world right now Shakespearean revival because there's two things uh, that are true to, you know, be your own frequency, your own brand to thine own self be true, which allows those 600,000 athletes to be true to themselves, to the brands that you work with. But also, I really wanted to explore the stage theory because, uh, you know, it's something that I've worked with for years of capturing content, modifying it correctly, amplifying it. And, and perpetuating it to be monetized and you're an expert you know from whether it was Ticketmaster, fanatics of course all your experience with img uh you know there's no one better out there and i think if people look at that perspective we got a little bit into the data side yeah. and you know understanding the value of what img and learfield you guys are capable of doing not just for the big brands but even for those small athletes i, I will just i have to add for the naming what, what i see from you know the years i've been in with you is that you know the nice thing is the big guys that may have in the past been taking money uh, that could not be uh, seen, you know, now above the table, the car, the car dealership, you know, the guy can give a hundred grand and get value for his hundred grand and still support his college and still encourage people to go to Texas A&M or SMU or TCU or wherever it is down South that they want to go yeah. without having to, to cheat anyone. And I really like the fact that people are getting paid the way they should be 
Uh, and then I love the fact, you know, I, I pay kids all the time, a hundred dollars a month just to post and tell people, you know, whether they like my content or not. And that hundred dollars, you know, for, for a, a captain of a lacrosse team, hundred dollars a month, beer money, they'll never forget Dave Meltzer. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's right. It matters. It matters. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're, you're, you're helping to fuel the ecosystem. That's for sure. Uh, we're going to have you back. Cole. It wasn't fair to only have 15 minutes with you. I got tons of other shows. You're an incredible uh, resource for so many people. Check them out at Learfield.com. But uh, where can people personally follow you and learn more about your experiences and your perspective? You know, I probably should be more vocal uh, on the platform for sure. But I, I am on, on Twitter at, uh, at Cole G13. Uh, so you can just search Cole Gahagan or, or just type in Cole or Cole G13. And somehow, some way you can find it and, uh, I try and mix in a little bit of a little bit of personal perspective, a little bit of professional perspective, and a little bit of fun. Um, but that's probably the main the main spot that you can find me. And then, uh, of course, Lear, our handle at Learfield has all kinds of cool stuff. And the number thirteen significance, Gamarino. What's going on? Uh, it's it was because of I, I cannot believe you just pegged that out of completely nowhere. It was Dan Marino. I was a quarterback when I was younger. I, I wanted to be Dan Marino, uh, as evidenced by what I do for a living now. I clearly was was not, but it was my number. It stayed my number, my lucky number for many years. Now my 14-year-old son, he's 13. So it kind of holds a special special place in the heart. Well, I'm a Warren Moon guy, so you, you know what my number is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good number to have. It's a great yeah. number. Thanks so much, Cole. We'll have you back on. We'll see you soon. Enjoy it, guys. Thanks. Take care. You're amazing. Take care. That's awesome. Medical, thanks. Oh man, yeah. I wish you were make here. Make sure that's Friday when he's back. Yeah, we got. Oh, we got. We got to make sure because I didn't get it. I I need him for an hour. Like, there's so many questions I had written down here, uh, but you know that's the nature of the biz. Well, we'll bring Rebecca Zung on, uh, one of my new friends, RebeccaZung.com. Slay it, girl. What's going on? <laughs> Not much. What's going on with you? So good to see you. Yeah, it's like we're dating. I'm not going to tell my wife. I get to see you every day. I this know, is amazing. two days in a row. <laughs> Lucky me. We got we got three lawyers on the uh, in the house, and nobody's practicing law like Dave Marino. But uh, I we love figured it out. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> the narcissist negotiation expert. How do you like that, Marino? You you ready to fire on this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, first, I I just think your branding and marketing is tremendous. Uh, win my negotiation, slay your negotiation, bringing, you know, colloquial terms like slay to like a boring old profession like the law is such a nice wordplay that both Dave and I appreciate and respect. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what slay your negotiation means and where it came from and what you guys are up to? So what I do is I tell people I'm a narcissist negotiation expert. How crazy is that, right? I mean... But, you know, there's it's one in 10 people are supposedly narcissists or have narcissistic traits or tendencies. And if each one of those people narcissistically abuses five people in their lifetimes, that's 3.4 billion people, which means that basically everyone has had to deal with one. So, yeah. So that means that what I do is I teach people how to shift the dynamic with people who are difficult. And I give them real tips, tricks, resources on how to powerfully uh, shift the dynamic so that they can actually have a, a feeling of power, not just in negotiations, but actually in their communications, their everyday language, whether it's in their personal lives or business lives. And I teach them how to do that on my YouTube channel. I really just started doing this about 18 months ago. I now have close to 2 million views a month on my YouTube channel. And Slay actually is my methodology. So Slay is not just the words that I use. It actually stands for strategy, leverage, anticipating what the narcissist is going to do and being two steps ahead of them and focusing on you, your case, and your position. And it actually works in just straight negotiations as well. It can work for narcissists, but it actually can work for any kind of negotiation. And beyond that, I think it's important. Uh, the strategy is essential, but identifying a narcissist is really interesting to me because yeah. a lot of people don't recognize or identify when they're dealing with one. And if you can, I think then it's extremely valuable to utilize the strategies. How do we identify a narcissist? Yeah, so to me, it's actually really a spectrum because, 
you know, all people want to feel seen, heard, and know that they matter. That doesn't make you a narcissist. That just makes you a human being. Uh, yeah. So narcissist is really at the all the way at the end of the spectrum. It's just a person who has no inner sense of value. So they have to get all of their sense of value from external sources. And so therefore, they can't have any sense of feeling care, empathy, or, or feeling for other people. So they just, they, they don't have any ability to have empathy for others. And so how that shows up, how that manifests is that they, um, they, all of their, the way people see it most of the time is the external side. They think, oh, these are the people that are, want the big houses, the big cars, the prestigious jobs, the prestigious friends. But there's that, what I call the dark underbelly of it, which is the devaluing people, the debasing people, diminishing people, the control side. And that's, that's the side that, where they're really, really treating people poorly. Um, and it's all tied up in what we call narcissistic supply. And that's anything that feeds a narcissist ego. I want to tap into the methodology for, for a second because the A. a uh oh. A, I think Dave's, uh, Maddie, I think Dave's breaking up there. Uh, you know, taking on your course, uh, you know, like I do, I've been giving uh, free training for over 21 years. You've been giving back to the community uh, to help them with these types of negotiations to deal with the healing that actually can occur by negotiating correctly with a narcissist and you have a crush my negotiation prep course that's free uh what do you teach in that course uh and how does it help people so what i have is a free crush my negotiation prep worksheet uh and the the prep worksheet is a 15 page worksheet that i give away and you got to pluralize that. It's worksheets. It's a worksheet. I do, <laughs> I, like yeah. a to me. <laughs> I do have free, I do have free courses as well. I have a three, uh, you know, three must have secrets to communicating with a narcissist. I do actually have free trainings as well. Um, and then obviously thousands and thousands of hours of free training on my YouTube, YouTube. channel as well. But, um, and, and I have create leverage, over the narcissist in, in, in three steps. I do have free trainings as well. Um, just not the crush my negotiation prep worksheet is a worksheet. Um, but, um, that is something that I give away. It's a 15 page ebook and it, it just is to get people started and people can get that at winmynegotiation.com. That's the URL for it. And it's just a way to get people started. People have told me that they've won their entire negotiations just on that by the way. Um, and uh, slayernegotiation.com is the URL for the actual course. Um, and, you know, I just offer all of these tools because people are just so ready to feel powerful and to finally have real tools to be able to go on the offensive. And I'm the only attorney on the planet right now that is actually teaching people how to powerfully change the dynamic. People think that there's no way to negotiate with narcissists, that there's, they just can't win. And I'm here to tell you that that's just simply not true, that you can. Wow. Yeah, what I was asking you before I got disconnected, and I apologize uh, for that, is the A in slay is for anticipate. And obviously to anticipate, you must have some background information or knowledge. So in your experience, what are those go-to things, habits, traits that narcissists displays, display that you can sort of you know, duck, dodge, or turn around in your favor uh, during a negotiation or even just an interaction? Because they are, they are incredibly difficult to deal with even in a regular social interaction. Forget yeah, a contentious you know, debate or negotiation. Yeah, the beautiful thing about narcissists, even though they are the most difficult people to deal with, is that they are actually really, really predictable. They actually kind of all have the same playbook. Um, and the the other myth is that they are they, they people think that they're super afraid. They 
the thing is, I mean, or that um, people are really afraid of them. The, the thing is that they're actually way more afraid of you than you are of them. And um, if you just push back on them, they, they hope that you don't. Um, because once you start to push back on them, they they actually start having like tantrums. And the thing is that they're actually the worst right before they're ready to give up. And there are <laughs> tactics that you can use to create strategy and leverage, which is the S and the L in my, in my slave methodology. And they're just, the thing is, it's all tied up in narcissistic supply. And the thing is that you do have to create strategy that is going to be, um, that will... Um, threaten a source of narcissistic supply that's going to be more important for them to protect and maintain than the supply that they get from intimidating you and jerking you around. And, and that, so they're really, really easy to figure out. And, you know, normal people, regular people were motivated, more motivated by lots and lots of different things. Narcissists are really only motivated by one thing, and that's narcissistic supply. And that's why it, it's kind of easy to figure out what you're doing once you understand the personality type. And Rebecca, you've written so many best-selling books. Uh, is there a common chord between the narcissist, negotiate like you matter, the surefire method, to step up and win, which Robert Shapiro, my friend, wrote the forward to breaking free. You seem to be able to break down all of these different negotiation tools with step-by-step -step type of procedures. Um, is there a common thread or a skill set that you've utilized in all these different types of negotiations to create these methodologies that are statistically successful? I, the, the common thread is that human beings all want to feel seen, heard, and know that we matter. That is the common thread. The, the one thing about narcissists is that they want to feel seen, heard, heard and know that they matter more than anyone else. Nice. And understand that, then you can figure out how to negotiate with them. Could you have consulted in the presidential debate? I absolutely could have. And I, I actually was thinking about reaching out to, to offer my services, but I decided, you know what? I'm not dipping my toe in that pool. You <laughs> <laughs> swim in the shallow end. Uh, exactly. Dave, yeah. you got a last question for us? Yeah. What, what advice would you give for folks? Like, especially we have three lawyers on here at differing levels of our, you know, stage and phases of a legal career. What advice would you give for young lawyers in regards to how to maximize the degree? Because we have three very, very different backgrounds and careers. And a lot of folks think of us in this box. And looking back, what would you tell your younger self? And what would you what do you want to tell the young women and men that want to be lawyers now? Oh gosh. You know, one of the <laughs> run, things run, run. <laughs> yeah, well, that's definitely true. But one of the things that I did when I was starting out, I figured out early on that I needed to market myself. And so I was actually a, a high net worth divorce attorney right from the beginning. I happened to join a firm that was doing high net worth divorce right from the beginning, which is a very different kind of divorce than doing regular divorces. You have to understand very complicated kinds of things. And I understood that to market myself, I couldn't go and do talks on divorce. Nobody wanted to hear that. So I did develop a talk on negotiation early on. And I literally, I was practicing in Naples, Florida, which was a very affluent community. I developed a talk on negotiation and I gave that talk to literally every Rotary Club, every League of Women Voters, every single medical association from uh, Sarasota all the way to Marco Island and everywhere in between. And that is how I developed my practice. And so I would say to younger lawyers, you have to hustle. You got to figure out a way to market yourself if you want to develop your practice. Now, I think that, Dave, can I just say one thing? Because that resonates so well with me and I'm a true believer in that. And it reminds me of you, Dave Meltzer, uh, all of the speeches and places you spoke before you started being on stages and the fact that you respected the grind and stayed the course. You guys both have obviously done that. And that you, you guys don't get to where you are without doing that. And a lot of folks think this happens by accident, but you guys are in these positions just because you decided one day, I want to be Dave Meltzer, I want to be Rebecca Zahn. Rebecca Zahn, I think that's really great advice. 
Yeah, I think one other thing that I learned, and I'm sure Rebecca will agree with me, is that those very first speeches, when you're you know doing 100 speeches a year for any college, graduate school, rotisserie, you know, rotary clubs and chambers <laughs> of commerce and elk clubs and you know in front of two people uh, or 200. Been there. Yeah. The one thing I tell young speakers, though, and and there was one that I was coaching recently, I said, you got to realize that if you get in front of 100 people, no matter what you say, because of frequency, 10% of the people are going to love you. And here's what's dangerous for new speakers. You speak, 10% of the people come up and tell you, wow, that was amazing. Even one of those people may say you changed their life. But a real speaker, a developed speaker, someone that's practiced and stood in front of audience after audiences and understand it's not what I say, it's what they hear and are listening, are speaking to what people are listening for, you'll capture the other 80% because 10% are going to hate you no matter what. 10% are going to love you no matter what. But it's such a misleading factor for new speakers because they get up there and there's always, because of your frequency, 10% that are going to resonate with you and you automatically think you're Tony Robbins well, I'm here to tell you, I've been speaking for many years and I get paid a lot of money to speak and I'm no Tony Robbins. And I know what he does, the subtleties of being able to garner 100% of that audience, even the 10% that come in wanting to hate him, he's able to convert because he knows what people are listening for. He has a very wide spectrum of frequency that resonates with multiple people. Speaking of which, it's a great lead in because we have a man who is a key component in equity and inclusion. He speaks so many different types of frequency to include and appreciate all of us. Rebecca Zung, my narcissist negotiation expert, my new friend, an incredible, incredible advisor to so many. RebeccaZung.com, WinMyNegotiation.com, and SlayYourNegotiation.com. If you want an expert in negotiation, reach out to Rebecca. Watch our YouTube. It's incredible. Be one of the 2 million people all the time watching that stuff. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. You're Thank incredible. You. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. We had Arthur Ashton. Now we get Arthur Woods. How about that? <laughs> on, man. Hey, David. Good to see you. Hey, David. Thank you for joining us, the co-founder of Matheson. And, um, you know, no better time to have you on here because diversity, inclusion, equity are things that Dave Marino and I have dedicated our careers and our personal lives uh, as I have from the Clemente family to Jackie Robinson to Warren Moon uh, in the sports mm. world, but now more importantly in the business world, uh, being able to help people appreciate not only how similar, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about, hey, we're all humans, you know. I think it's right. more important to teach people to appreciate the differences, to mm. find the light, the love, and the lessons and how different we are. And I think when we can do that, which is something that I know you're really working on in Hiring for Diversity, uh, which is your new book, uh, you know, resonated with me about the mm. urgency of, hey, we got to start uniting by appreciating the differences. It's rhetoric to talk about, let's, we're all the same. We're not. My mom used right. to say, we had six kids. She's like, I can't, <laughs> I can't treat you kids equally because you're, you're not the same, right? right? I need to learn to appreciate the differences so I can serve what you need because you're different. And I love you all for your differences. I don't want all my kids mm. to be six, six tuplets. That would be a, a, a boring. Uh, it would be terrible for my siblings to all look like me too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> wh wh where do you see the issue today? I know you wrote the book, uh, yeah. which is so important. But, but where's that crux for you in appreciation of this idea of diversity? Yeah, David, that's it's so well said. And, you know, I, I, I think the way we really think about this right now is that if we think fundamentally about the way that most organizations have been designed, uh, we've designed organizations fundamentally to, to ask people to conform. We've said, you are a professional. To be a professional, you look like this. This is our corporate culture. And we're asking you to, to come and you know, fit right into that mold of the corporate culture. And if we think about that, that's truly the antithesis of diversity. And that has been, as we know, the way that corp corporate culture has been defined today. So just as you said, I think there's this exciting new, you know, emergence of, of celebrating people for bringing their full selves to work, celebrating differences, innovating because we have diversity of thought, and truly looking at the fact that we're not going to serve a diverse customer base and we're not going to innovate in a creative way if we all operate in a homogenous way of thinking. Um, and I think this last year, you know, the, the great resignation, a dear friend of mine called it the great awakening. 
because it's it, it it really you know got us to wake up and see you know gain perspective on the fact that people are now making conscious decisions to find places that celebrate them for who they are that reflect their values and i actually think it's been kind of a wonderful thing that organizations have had to wake up to that you know I, you know, I think that's amazing. And Dave's not lying. You're speaking our language. Uh, I speak on diversity and inclusion uh, across the globe. And you know, recently spoke to Philip Morris in Hong Kong about their DNI efforts and initiatives. And it's funny because everybody's DNI looks different. So here we've got racial diversity. There it's more so gender diversity, right? And yeah. it, it's really the same stuff, just packaged differently. And it's funny. I made a Schoolhouse Rock reference last week, Dave. It's another childhood reference for you. I remember very, very early on watching Saturday Night Morning cartoons, and one of the commercials said, great minds think alike, and then the guy smashes him. He says, no, great minds think for themselves, right? And that was a powerful statement <laughs> yeah. even back then, and that cartoon has always stuck with me because I think it's it's completely true when you go to, to business, corporations, et cetera. Our, the groups that we serve, our customer bases, if we are in the sales industry or the people that we service, service are not monolithic. So why should we have a monolithic voice in terms of who we are? What I'm really curious about with, with Matheson, what you guys are doing is how are you guys using technology to, mm -hmm. to help in DNI efforts? I find that to be magnificent. Yeah, David, great question. You know, what we realized was organizations have a, a lot we of intent. We keep score. Sorry. Yeah, it's just me and Dave keep a score. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all yeah. yeah all, great get, all great questions get a point. <laughs> oh, yeah, great, great. Exactly. Boom, boom. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. We, we got to get the competition in there. Well, you know, organizations, I mean, without a doubt, and I think, you know, you said this earlier, Dave, you know, everyone has a lot of intent to see change right now. But yeah. there's a big difference between that intent and the impact and the action that, that we actually see, you know, manifesting. And uh, what, what we realized was organizations can't rely only on offline manual support to do this work, especially we think of high growth companies, some of which, you know, don't even have a head of DEI, right? They're, they're navigating this work sometimes with one recruiter, sometimes no recruiter, trying to make these amazing changes to the way they, they structure, the way they, they train their people, the way they design their systems. So we said, look, this is, this is a, a need for 21st century technology. So what we've done is we've created a, an end-to-end -end system that helps companies essentially audit their hiring process to date, figure out where they have gaps and bias, uh, change the way they, they fundamentally source, and, um, and all in this process, uh, change the way they actually train their people, realizing that we really need everyone around the table. It's no longer going to be just a select few of people or, you know, in our organizations driving this change forward. So it's been wonderful to see that there's scalability. You know, the thing that excites me the most, guys, honestly, is seeing you know, early stage startups embedding this work from the ground up, you know, at that, at that critical stage when, as you know, they're ripe to, you know, build this into their DNA. And it's, it's really the big corporations we have to worry about right now who have to turn the major ocean liner and change hearts and minds and systems all at the same time when they've so deeply embedded, you know, a very different approach for years and years. It's these high growth startups that I'm most excited about. You know, it's incredible because it takes time, you know, and yeah. I've worked with the female quotient over years and all the different communities. And I always have to reiterate, just like bad habits and good habits, they aggregate upon themselves. But we have to also, uh, with the persistence of creating change, have patience uh, to allow the change to occur. And, you know, I think back uh, being involved in the NFL and the Rooney Rule, and mm -hmm. everybody was questioning way back when, you know, like, it's not going to make any difference if you, you know, interview uh, minorities for head coach positions because there was none. Yeah. Well, look at the league today. You know, my my business partner uh, who they made play in Canada for six years uh, because of the color of his skin. Uh, but it made a difference when they let him play quarterback. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, beyond the, the technology, you know, being able to make the effort extra effort by implementing something like with math Matheson from startups to fortune five companies mm -hmm. uh, that the message is that it's worth it. Right. They, yeah. it, and I think the numbers prove that it's worth it. And we see the revenue uh, numbers, which are most important, especially to a public company shareholder value, what we get. And it took time to be able to get all that data, to create technologies, to allow people to have opportunities to love themselves and be a part of a creative system, a collaborative system where you're allowed to love yourself and you yeah. don't have to be like everybody else. And I think it's interesting because 
if you look at anybody of any sex, race, color, religion, uh, preference, whatever it is, in the end, the biggest thing that we have is we're always trying to please other people, to want what other people want for us, what's missing or what we don't want. And there's a much larger impact of what Matheson is doing is mm-hmm. I hear uh, and feel a message that says, learn to love you. Mm-hmm. And if you can love yourself, then everyone else is going to easily love you as well. And yes, there'll be the 10%, just like on the speaking, that no matter what, they're going to hate you. Yeah. And they'll, <laughs> and they'll be the, right. And there'll be the 10%, no matter what, that's going to love you. Mm-hmm. But I want to attack that 80% in the middle to say, hey, everyone, learn to love you, and it'll be so easy uh, to love others and for others to love you. How do we take the subjective side of what Matheson does beyond the technology and kind of encourage or enlighten people that this is really an easy philosophy of inclusion and diversity that we can bring to the table beyond the hyper-technical side of EHI or anything else that you do there? Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I think this all comes down to exactly what you were just saying, which is which is learning to really lead with empathy. And that's both in the way we treat ourselves, but also in the way that we treat each other. And, you know, when we look at the common thread in the inequity that ex- has existed in our systems to date, it's mostly because we've been designing around the, the idea that people are widgets, people are numbers, they're not mm-hmm. human beings. And it's amazing how even like the hiring process for most organizations has been designed in a way that you know, we, we are trying to weed people out. We're trying to cut them out and, and you know, reduce the funnel to the, the most qualified candidates versus empowering people and inviting them in and recognizing that an underrepresented job seeker has walked into a hiring process and typically had very little confidence and not felt safe to be themselves. And if we shift the entire equation and say, wow, how do I create a, 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 you know, a process and experience that's rooted in empathy and empowerment and that celebrates people for who they are, that is going to be the ultimate litmus test for everything we do. And, you know, we don't need a book or we don't need technology to, you know, lead with empathy. Yeah. What's the, sorry. That's, I that's beautiful, man. I mean, <laughs> Thanks, I, yeah, no, I have so many questions for Arthur. This is a short one. Cause this is my, not my actual question. We saw all of the companies uh, after the, the, the murder of George Floyd say, we're giving so much money to black owned businesses and black recruiting and all of these things. And the question I get most when I believe it or not speak on this topic is what, where'd that money go? What happened to that? So I don't know if you have any yeah. thoughts on that, but I actually had another question for you. I'll see if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah, you know, a lot of companies, you know, sadly, you know, I mean, as you both know, a lot of what drove action after the murder of George George Floyd was a performative activism. You know, it was Mm a, we need to put up the black tile. We need to show that we're doing something. It wasn't a, how can we really make a difference right now? And what is really going to change long-term? And that's unfortunate because it was, it was, it it already started kind of from the wrong place, sadly. And, um, and that was a flash in the pan. And so I think, you know, we saw, I'm, I'm so glad to see that companies donate money to the community. Um, but I, I don't think a lot of companies said this, this, this happened and it changes everything. A lot of it was this happened and how are we going to show that we're responding? And again, just not quite the exactly what we needed. Right. So, um, you know, we, and, and actually what happened is the year, a year later, we didn't see those donations, you know, mm-hmm. repeat themselves. And so that wasn't a sustainable response. That was, again, an episodic, you know, event, right? Um, so yeah, a, lot, you know, a think, lot of companies saw it as a marketing opportunity, believe it yeah. or not. And, you yeah. know, I unfortunately was involved in conversations with people asking how to utilize it as a marketing <laughs> opportunity. And I tried oh, to gosh. transition or re-engineer that into, no, what really has a marketing opportunity is doing good deeds. Um, yeah. And it, it pays off in the long run. i I'm older than both of you, so I, I know the long run what, what works, and I tried my best to encourage some companies, but you know a lot of them in the short term were just looking for a spin, uh, and unfortunately, it's not sustainable. Well, and similar to what we see during Pride Month, right, where we see organizations change their logos and have a, a float in the parade and uh, still not honoring tr- their transgender you know, colleagues and, and offering you know, same-sex couple uh, parental leave, you know, and it, so, you know, actions are speaking louder than words in some of this, right? Yeah, yeah. And look for those actions. Well, Arthur, man, we appreciate you. Please let us know, you know, Dave's the first uh, black partner in his law firm, a prestigious law firm, and I give them kudos for taking action and making him a partner in that firm uh, because 
You know, we need milestones in our life of all types. We need to see people that think, say, and do and look like us in order to go past where they're at. And so everything you're doing to encourage hiring for diversity, uh, to take the appropriate action, not just throw money or marketing at it. So we appreciate you. Come back on our show. Hey, Anything thank you, you both. Thank you for creating the space for this. See you Thanks, guys. Thank one you, of the best backgrounds we've ever had, too. I like oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. This is Miami. So, yeah. Uh, Dave, got, Dave, has the prison, Dave, has the prison, Dave has the prison background. So, look at that. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. that works, that works. It's not wake the baby. Yeah. All right, guys. All right, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dave, I wish great. more people, more companies, more individuals could understand and realize that you can do well by doing good. Yeah. Right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can do well by doing good. Uh, be kind to your future self. Do well by doing good. That's a sounds like something I would say. Uh, Justin Caswell is here. He is the founder and CEO of Revofi, R-E-V-O-F-I.com, and uh, an incredible advocate for decentralized wireless infrastructure, changing the world of Wi-Fi uh, or Revofi. And, uh, you know, give us a little bit of background, Justin, real quickly on what you're doing there as the founder and CEO of Revofi. And then I think you have a question for the Double Davids. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thanks for the introduction. I appreciate that. Uh, so just really quick, I mean, it's real simple. Uh, we're, we're basically making devices that uh, people can buy. And whenever they purchase that, those device owners then become uh, their own service provider. Meaning that, you know, now by providing, uh, you know, wireless access via Wi-Fi 6 mesh, storage and compute on the device, you're now making money in cryptocurrency uh, that you can then, you know, obviously trade for U.S. cash to pay your, your Internet bill. Uh, so the whole idea here, right, is uh, really kind of, you know, it's a paradigm shift. And, and we really want to enable people to have a sense of ownership uh, of their connectivity and, uh, you know, and their Internet, especially given, you know, the, la you know, the last year in, in the pandemic. Right. None of us have control over our own ISP and our own connectivity. So I think it, it's time. It's a timely kind of product for 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 the market as well. Wow. Awesome. It's kind of a block blockchain of that Revo kind. It's your own blockchain of Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's um, you know, owned by everybody. Uh, so, I mean, we we just make the devices. But then, you know, everybody that's involved, uh, our community, you know, each one of those is a business owner. That's awesome. Well, you got a question for the Double Davids? I do. So my question uh, is, you know, for if, if you guys had to uh, give one strategy uh, to to your audience in regards to cryptocurrency, uh, what would it be? Dave, you want me to go first or you get the choice? Yeah, I can lead off because I'm sure mine is not as profound as, as yours. Um, educate yourself as much as possible and don't be afraid. Right. There has been so many changes and, and I'm, I was born in 1986, right? They say that our generation has seen so much change in actual adaptability to technology more than any other generation. And we, me and my wife were talking about it the other day, how we would like walk to school, like holding our CD player like this so it wouldn't scratch. Right now we've got thousands of, of, of CDs and MP3s like on Spotify. We listen to it in real time and we adapted to that. So we have been a generation of folks that haven't been resistant or afraid of change. So when I say to educate yourself, I think it's important for you guys, for everyone to have a base level understanding of how crypto works, how it's a mechanism, how it can help you. And then once you have that understanding, you can not be fearful to implement it into your life more. So for me, it's educate yourself and don't be afraid. Yeah, for me, it's easy because this is the same advice I give in all different spaces of prospecting or investing. Uh, and you can't find outside of yourself, especially in prospecting or investing, what you can't find inside of yourself, meaning uh, know your timing and risk tolerance. See, what 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 is such a foolish uh, notion in investing uh, is that we know what we don't know. Uh, you know, I've been around a long time. And if anyone can tell me with any certainty what's going to happen tomorrow, with the dollar, with crypto, with oil, with cotton, with coffee, it wouldn't matter. If you could tell me 100% sure, I can make billions of dollars. I'll, you know, Call me if you know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. I promise you, I know how to make billions of dollars. I'll give mine to charity. You keep yours for you and your family. But nobody knows that. And so once you realize that we're all pretending that there's just ignorant, humble people like myself that admit we don't know what we don't know in investing. And then there's the ignorant, arrogant people that pretend that, you know, they know that 
AMC is going to go to $5,000 a share or whatever nonsense I hear about people that have the ignorant arrogance. The only certainty in investing or prospecting is to know your timing and risk tolerance because you can find that out. You can align any uh, token with your timing and risk tolerance. And if you align that token or crypto with your timing and risk tolerance, you'll always be satisfied. So, you know, for me, if I invest in an annuity and it has an index based upside that's 60 or 70% of the market and it has a downside of 2%, if the market goes up a thousand times and I don't make as much money, I'm super happy because I knew the timing and risk tolerance. But I also am super happy if the market crashes and I get my 2% and everyone lost all their money. Not because I made or, or lost more or less money than anyone else, because I knew my timing and risk tolerance. So please, anybody out there, especially with cryptocurrency, combine David's advice, find people who sit in the situation that you want to be in, gather as much advice about one thing. Does this align with my timing and risk tolerance as an investor or prospector? And if it does, move forward. And if it doesn't, find something that does. And uh, I'm so intrigued, Justin, by what you're doing. I love people that think outside the box, democratize, decentralize, any old industry, any re-engineering, rethinking, as David McCourt says. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Reach out if you need my help. Uh, I know a lot about your space. Would love to be of assistance to you. David at dmeltzer.com. Anyone out there, reach out to me. Justin Caswell, he is the founder and CEO of Revofi, Revofi.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Talk awesome. Thank Thanks. you. All right, Dave, take away for the day, my boy. I'm going to repeat my same takeaway from a couple minutes ago because I feel like it's so <laughs> it's so important. You can do well by by doing good. You know, be a good person and good things will happen. It's very, very simple. Go out on a Saturday and mentor a kid. Go out on a Sunday when you don't want to and appear and speak to a group um, because you never know who you're going to impact and you never know who's listening. And by being genuine, it, you can lead yourself and open yourself up to receivership for good things to happen to you. Uh, there's nothing I can give you but kudos for that, of course. And my takeaway for the day is something I said as well. You can't find outside of you what you can't find inside of you. So, you know, whether it's your name, in, image, or likeness in a new frontier of IMG in Learfield or Rebecca Zung dealing with a narcissist, you have to find inside of you the meaning of what you see and the strategies that you uh, execute on. Of course, making complete sense with our friend Arthur Woods learning to love ourselves and looking within and giving meaning to what we see. See, if we look within, we just connect outside, right? We, we are all one when we look inside of ourselves. And of course, with Justin as well, democratizing and decentralizing uh, the network and understanding we're all a piece, a part of the collaborative network of the universe, all connected to and through the greatest source of light, love, and lessons, as I feel connected to you as my little brother, Although apparently on the outside, we may be uh, complete opposites, but on the inside, uh, we are connected fully uh, with love, respect, unconditional love and respect. And I appreciate you coming while your baby uh, is there. And I know you're prioritizing things. So uh, please, everybody, you give meaning to everything you see. Find inside of you what you want outside of you. And doing well uh, will allow you to do good. And all good things will happen to those who do good. Thank you so much, Dave. I will see you on Friday. We're going to Portugal. You better get some rest because we got a serious agenda ahead of us yeah. with the Celsius Network and Web Summit and all types of extraordinary opportunities to grow, expand, and accelerate. The incredible Dave Marino, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dave. You got it, brother. I love you. All right, everyone. David at dmeltzer.com. You want my book, ebook, audio book. You want me to sign a copy of my book and send it to you. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Rebecca. I want to thank Arthur and, of course, Justin for joining me and sharing their successes and lessons that they have learned. Thank you so much. Please join me tomorrow. As always, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you later. Thank you.